another episode of the Steve Freeman Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Performance Inspired Nutrition. That's pi-nutrition.com. If you want to live a more healthy and active lifestyle, there's no better way to do it than with my friends at Performance Inspired Nutrition, pi-nutrition.com. If you want to lose some weight, they're perfect for you. You can do exactly what I do. I drink a ripped whey protein shake every morning. I take one cup of the powder, I put it in the cup, and I mix it with eight ounces of milk. It keeps me feeling full all day, gives my body all of the supplements that I need throughout the day to help me burn fat. It keeps my metabolism going strong. Plus, I'm not even hungry all day long. I'm not reaching in the pantry for the chips or all that other absolutely delicious stuff that's horrible for you. I don't do that anymore because of performance-inspired nutrition. If you're on the keto diet, listen, I know it's hard to stay on any diet, but the keto diet, anything else, it's hard. They have uh, cookies. They have all kinds of cool stuff that fit and work right in with the keto diet. You have to check it out. I also happen to take the whole food multigrain vitamin every single morning. Tons of stuff there to help you. It is all natural. It's all plant-based. No artificial ingredients. Nothing that is not good for you. Because that is the most important thing at Performance Inspired Nutrition is that it is all natural and it is plant-based, and it's only good stuff going into your body to help you live a more healthy and active lifestyle. Lose weight, stay in shape. I'm telling you, I use it every day. I wish you would try it. Go to pi-nutrition.com at checkout, enter code Steve, and get 10% off your order. Right now, they're running a ton of specials with even free shipping on orders over $75, I believe. Go check it out now. Performance-inspired nutrition from Mark Wahlberg, Tom Dowd, Marcus Luttrell, Draymond Green. These guys know nutrition, they know fitness, and you can trust performance-inspired nutrition. Check it out today at pi-nutrition.com. We're also brought to you by the Artist Development Academy, artistdevelopmentacademy.com. If you are a singer, songwriter, artist, producer, content creator, engineer, and you want to take your career to the next level, don't buy into a lot of this crap that I'm seeing on Facebook about how to do this and how to do this and get rich quick. And it's a $745 course. You don't need to do all of that. What I've done at the Artist Development Academy is get my friends, you know, hit songwriters, multi-platinum selling producers, uh, label executives, publishing company executives, all in this one place as instructors to help you step by step and give you the information, access and guidance you need to help take your career to the next level. We're talking about real strategies in the form of online monthly courses that our all access members get every single month. When you join and become an All Access member, you immediately get uh, access to our entire library of online courses, plus you get a brand new online course every single month. You also get access to our members-only forum, where you can post your work for feedback. You can uh, post questions to me or any of the other industry insiders and the professionals. If you want to post a song you're working on, get our feedback, you can do that. Lots of stuff for you there to help grow your career. Plus, we do monthly live stream events where you can connect with us one-on-one in real time to ask your questions that are specific to your career. We are here to help you grow at an affordable price, okay? Go check it out today, artistdevelopmentacademy.com. And just because you are listening to this podcast, when you go to checkout and you choose either your monthly or annual subscription, uh, your membership, 
Enter code Steve, and I'm personally giving you 30% off of your monthly or annual membership. Go check it out. Now, basically, when you use your 30%, you get the entire year for like $75 or $13 a month. I'm telling you, if you think Netflix is worth it and Hulu's worth it, this will grow your career, so you really need to check it out. Go to artistdevelopmentacademy.com, enter code Steve at checkout, and get 30% off. excited about today's episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Today's guest has, uh, let's see what, three platinum albums, 10 gold albums, five gold singles. He's acted in over 60 films, including, uh, uh, let's see, Hudson Hawk, Staying Alive, Fred Claus, Tombstone. He's written and recorded compositions for nine films, including Rocky 1, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rambo 2, Paradise Alley, and Over the Top, as well as The Expendables 2. By now, you probably already know. Well, you probably know by the title exactly who I'm talking about. But he also received Grammy and Golden Globe nominations for the original song he wrote for the Saturday Night Fever sequel, Staying Alive. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Stallone is my guest on today's episode of the Steve Freeman Podcast. Don't go anywhere. You're going to love it. You're listening to the Steve Freeman Podcast, the real raw truth about the pursuit of success in music, business, and life. Here's your host, hit songwriter, multi-platinum selling producer, and serial entrepreneur, Steve Freeman. Welcome back to the Steve Freeman Podcast. This is my pleasure to bring in today uh, Frank Stallone. I'm so glad he's here. We're going to talk music business. We're going to talk politics. We're going to talk a little bit about everything. But for right now, Frank, welcome into the show. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Steve, for contacting me to have me on your wonderful show. Well, I know the funny thing is in researching for this, I was looking, it's, you know, artist, songwriter, musician, actor, entrepreneur. Which one of these things do does Frank Stallone consider himself to be? I would say the musician for sure. I mean, that was the first thing I did from a from a from a child and and I'm still doing it. Now, I hate to say it, I'll be 70 years old on Thursday. So, I've been doing it uh professionally for 55 years and uh with all the ups and downs, the stuff like that, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Let me ask you, and I want to get into a lot of it with you, but but where do you see, because the music business as it stands today, the music, the music that's being made today, the music that's being force-fed on the public today, what, what do you think where we are in the business right now versus the, the music that you started making that you still continue to make – what, what's the downside of it today for you when you look around on the, on the musical landscape? Well, the musicality is the downside. I mean, I mean, once in a while you get a breath of fresh air like the Kings of Leon that are like a real band. I mean, there's no sampling. I mean, they're like, you know, Tom Petty. They're a real band. Or Post Malone. I mean, he's actually, he's eccentric, but he's actually pretty good. Oh, I, I don't I, consider him hey, at all. I, I, I flew more. the entire family up to go see Post Malone in Madison Square Garden last September. And then we went again when he came here in Nashville. I couldn't, I could not agree with you more. Great, I think great. he's a genius. I asked a friend of his, that's very good. I go, why does he live in Utah? He goes, cause he loves shooting 50 caliber <laughs> rifles. He, 
is a gun nut. Even though he drives around these gaudy Rolls Royces, he goes, he just hangs around. He loves to shoot. And he's like a real, uh, you know, Second Amendment type guy. He's a real cool guy. So, uh, but the business has changed. Um, the expectation is different. I mean, when I came out, not as someone sound like an old arrow in my day, but in my day and when my time came, I was up against Michael Jackson, the police, Lionel Richie. I mean, there there was a moment. I don't even know if I have it somewhere. There was a moment on one of the charts when I was above all those guys. Not for long, but for a minute. Is it, in the hot that's one all that matters but is that minute. I was there. and uh, But again, all these guys, singer, songwriters, uh, not so much sampling. I mean, I, I, so what happened to me is, uh, after like almost 20 years in the trenches, really nothing happening when staying alive came out for me, that was my entree into the big time before I was on RCA failed record, this, that, that, but that was like going from, it was almost a Rocky store going from a broke and within a year being nominated for Grammy and a golden globe and platinum records and all that stuff like that. So that was my Rocky story. But the thing was, so we worked on my solo album, my first solo album, and it didn't go over as well as we thought it would. I mean, the record company was jazzed on it. They actually intercut five songs on the B side of the 45 because they thought there were so many hits on the record. So that didn't go well. So uh, I lost my record deal. Unfortunately, my people didn't get me a three record deal like everyone else got. And so I lost my deal. And then overnight, the, the, the business changed. It changed to, well, it was the early stages of, I guess, what you would call rap, hip hop. And no, I was writing with Lamont Dozier, Harry Nilsson. I was writing with some really good writers. I didn't know how to, the sampling and the, you know, that, that's just not my bag. I don't write like that, you know. And nor do I want to. And, and, and the people like that music, God bless them, you know, but it's not for me. So I decided to make a big band album because I always my everyone always said, man, you should do a big band album. You can really do that stuff really well. So I financed my own record. I started my own record label and I paid and it was not cheap. I did this mm-hmm. album with Sammy Nesco called In Love and Vain. Sammy had been nominated for many, many Grammys. He was Count Basie's conductor and arranger. I mean, he'd been around forever and he's still around. He's like 95 years old. He's really well respected. He told me that he thought it was the best album he ever made because I let him do whatever orchestrations he wanted to do. And Tony Bennett actually wrote the liner notes to that album. So I'm saying, okay, this album comes out. Dean Martin's alive. Frank Sinatra's alive. Tony, so the guys are alive. I mean, it's not like, okay, Frank came in where they're all dead. So this is, (laughs) this is my competition. Jack Jones, you name them, they're there. So the album comes out and I must admit to myself, I think the album is stupendous. It's called In Love and Vain. It's on uh, cdbaby.com, you know, on my label. And I figured, well, I can't compete with the kids, the young guys doing the hip hop and sampling and, you know, just, it's not like young MC. That's just not what I do, but I can compete in the adult contemporary traditional big band stuff because there was no one my age. This is before Harry Connick. This is before Michael Buble. The only one that did an album that was Linda Ronset, which was a great record and Harry Nilsson was great, but that was it. 
So I figured I'm in. It's the lane's new. Open. Yeah, the lane is open. It's, it's new material. It's new this, it's new that. Again, uh, RCA Records goes, wow, we, we really like this thing. I said, oh, my God, I'm so ecstatic. They call me up and goes, I swear to God, like a day before I signed the deal, nah, I don't think it's going to happen. We just had a regime change. I go, oh, Christ, here we go. So the album really never got to see the light of day. And it's a shame because it really is. A, 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 a gr- I think it's a great album because the arrangements, a lot of people, I don't do Sinatra songs per se. I do standards. This is before Rod Stewart. I do standards, but they're my own arrangements. Right. I mean, they're well, same as to goes and myself. And, uh, and they're really, it's different, you know, and Michael Buble, guess when Mike, when Sammy did stuff with Michael Buble, and Stephen and uh, Sammy says, do you know what was on David Foster's desk? I go, what? He goes, your CD, the one that we did. So, because Sammy was doing stuff with Michael Buble, and Michael's a great guy, and I like Michael a lot. I think he's really good. He's a really talented guy. And so that, so that set me back. I mean, that really set me back uh, tremendous because I didn't really have the team to say, okay, we'll get this on Concord Records. We'll get this here. We'll get this there. And just, I lost the momentum. So I became the working guy, you know, out there working and doing all that crazy stuff. And, uh, and that's how it goes. So, and I've recorded like 12 albums, different stuff, you know, don't mind my books. I got thousands and thousands of books. I don't even know what I'm going to do anymore. I mean, it's like, well, evidently you're going to read. (laughs) I've read every one of these books behind me and it goes up to the ceiling. Oh, wow. And I read all those books and there's another bookshelf over there. So it's uh, but something I like, you know, but now I'm getting into Kindle because I can't travel with four or five hardbacks anymore. That's more than my amp, you know. Right. Oh, absolutely. uh, And the business has changed in that sense, too. I remember before we used to have Amble cases, amps on the road. So that's all gone. Everything is back line now. And and. now you're fighting with people to carry your $80,000 Les Paul on the plane. <laughs> and then someone pushes their luggage into it. You want to kill them. You know, I said, excuse me, this guitar is worth more than like your life. Okay. <laughs> so, and so that whole thing has changed a lot and the business has changed. It's, uh, I mean, all these shows, American Idol, American, this, that, that other than the few people on those shows, most of them ha- don't have a clue because they like Daughtry and the guy that's in Queen, but they worked. They were like in a band. They they yeah. knew how to perform. These other guys had never reformed. The only one that really did, I mean, Carrie Underwood, she was kind of a novice, but she took to it and she did a great job. And so did uh, the other gal, the first girl. Uh, and Clarkson, uh, yeah. Great singer. But most of them, because they don't have a show. You know, every week it takes a week. They've got a voice coach. They got in ears. They got a thing that for one song. And I remember at that age, I was doing 160 minutes of music a night, six nights a week in bars. So you learn your craft. Mm. But there's uh, there's a lot to performing live, and I get a lot of kudos for my live show because I've been doing it for so long. I just it's natural. I know how to gauge you know when to do this. There's some audiences that want to hear talk and batter. Some don't. They just want to hear music. And I did that when I, I used to open for Don Rickles all the time. Oh, wow. And that was kind of a weird 
show for me. I mean, I went from like rock and roll to Don Rickles. But Don was great. And who am I to turn Don Rickles out? It was great. But the thing is, what you learn from those old timers, man, I don't care if they're half dead, they're going to do the show. And I was almost like that. I was, I very rarely get sick, but this one time I was so sick that my conductor, I had to lay in the back of a station wagon and go from my house out to the Indian casino where I was playing with Don Rickles. And I mean, I'm talking like sick and I'm never sick. And usually I have people backstage, we're drinking, having fun. I was like this. I was like weekend at burn. I was like Joe Biden, basically. <laughs> weekend at burn. I mean, that's why I was like, and all of a sudden they go, Frank, five minutes. I was on stage. I, it's really weird. I did one of the best shows I ever did. And then I went back and just out because I knew, because Don used to watch my show. They don't care. The show goes on. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So, no, I no. mean, I, I had the same manager for, for a minute that Frank Sinatra had, Elliot Weissman. Good guy. Yeah, he was Frank's manager. And I remember I was in New York. I was going to be playing at a place called Michael's Pub. And Frank was celebrating his 75th birthday at the Meadowlands. So there was like seventy-five to 80,000 tickets sold out, Frank. Frank has like 103 temperature. I mean, he's gone. Ellie said, what are we going to do? And Frank goes, I'm going on. The doctor goes, you could die. He goes, well, good. I'll die on stage, but I'm going on. There's no way I am not going to do that show. And he came on and it, it was iffy the first few songs. And man, that memory kicked in and he just kicked royal ass. That's the difference between a pro and a crybaby. Well, it is, and 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 I I agree a hundred percent. And it, it's that's what I when when I have new songwriters or new artists talk to me and try to get advice. You know, I, I I've always started from a place that I have no respect for anyone who never played to an empty room, and because oh, they have no, you know, even when it comes to Carrie Underwood, you know, she went from serving drinks at Sonic to playing sold out shows. There was there was yeah. no that no, she didn't pay her dude. Yeah, no. no. No, she didn't pay any dues. No, there were no the dues. Dude. And a lot of times now, they almost wear that as a badge of honor. Like, we didn't have to do this, and we didn't have to do that. And it's like, look, you know, the value. But I'll, I will also say this, and I'd like to get your point of view on this. See, I am, my disdain for the music business, and even music as it is today, is because there's no storytelling anymore. The, the song oh, wow. almost doesn't matter. And the song matters to me. And, you know, we've taken that element out of it. We don't tell stories. We do, There's no, I had a publisher. Writers like, oh, like no. Don Williams. Oh. Yeah, you don't have like that. No, I had my publisher literally, this is verbatim, called me into a meeting about two and a half years ago and set me down and said this, quote, Steve, we need you to stop writing great songs and start writing hit songs that we can get cut. How about that? How about that? And that that's so hard releasing bootleg riots. Oh, I mean, these guys are really well. I mean, look at all those Everly Brothers sets. These people are well crafted songwriters. I mean, Johnny Cash, not the greatest singer, but he was Johnny, and his thing got across. Willie yes. Nelson, people forget he wrote Crazy and he wrote all these big hits. But these were well crafted tunesmiths. That's why I was saying to you before, don't have that anymore. No. 
Like that, that's hey, not what they're looking for. I mean, that's insane. Listen, Steve, don't write me a great song. Write me a hit song, which means okay, crappy songs are becoming hit songs. Well, it does, and and for me, I don't. I don't I've never distinguished those two things. I, to me, a, a, a hit song would come. And well, I always tell people this, too. And a lot of people don't understand this. But and it's a general public thing. A hit song only becomes a hit song when a record label puts a million dollars behind it. That's when a exactly. song becomes a hit. So a yeah. hit has never, ever, ever, ever been written in a room anywhere. A great song has been written in a room somewhere, oh, yeah. and then a record yeah. label made it a hit. You know, I've written so many songs, and you know, you see sometimes on my Instagram, I do my little concerts of my songs I've written. I've written a lot of songs. I'm not, there's no one to write to anymore. I mean, it's, you know, I think people forget it's not easy to write a song, it's solitary. That's why I didn't suffer too much during the pandemic, because being a songwriter, it is solitary. You know, you're not sitting there, you know, listening to the radio where you're trying to scramble your brain to make a lyric make make sense or something like that. So, uh, I so sometimes it's hard to get inspired to inspire to write a song because where's it going? No, no, no. That's you know? that. No, that's a where, great where, point. I had somebody call me the other day and they're like, Hey, uh, let's, let's get each other. Let's get on the books, man. Let's, let's write. And I'm like, why, why? Yeah. You know, the, what's what's the purpose unless it's, you know, and I, and one of the things I want to ask you about too is about, I don't know, maybe my God, I keep, I've said five years ago now it's 10 years ago now, but I really got into writing, you know, songs and music for TV and film. And, and I got into <laughs> loving that because the vehicle was predetermined. I knew what the vehicle yeah. for the song was, I, you know, and, and I, I wanted to ask you the same thing. How do you approach that? Or do you approach it differently when you're saying, okay, I want to sit down. I want to write, I want to write a Frank Stallone song. I want to write a song for me. Or do you prefer doing stuff for TV and film? Does that give you another outlet? Does that, does that allow you to take on a different persona or are the songs that you're, you've done and continue to do for TV and film? Are those just Frank Stallone songs that get synced and get put in these movies? Yeah. Well, uh, staying alive, I wrote specifically for that movie, those songs, uh, for Rambo two. When I wrote peace in our life, I wrote that specifically for that thing. Nowadays, they just grab a song from a hip hop artist and just throw it into the movie. So they're not like written for specifically for the, for the, for the, uh, picture. You know, it's funny. God, my nose is itching. I don't know what's going on. It must be the pollution anyway. But like some acts I saw, I was, I was playing in Oklahoma in, uh, at the Buffalo run casino. And so we went down the road about 20 miles to go see big and rich. And I got to tell you, man, those guys put on a hell of, and they're nice guys. And they have that bar behind the stage. And of course I was sitting there drinking and having a blast. And those guys really put on a great, it's not even so much a country show. It's a circus. It's kind of, it's a, yeah, but it's great. They mm -hmm. got that big black guy that comes out, <laughs> this guy here. And it's like one big happy family, but they are, I tell people, you know, there's a few shows. That's one you should miss because it's really entertaining and john's a smart guy yeah. he's no dumbbell he's he's a pretty sharp character no he really is but you know i've seen it's like watching paint dry because they don't have an act like yeah. when you were saying writing 
songs. Now, if I'm James Taylor, I can write because I know it's going to be released or Paul McCartney, even though I've had hit records. But nowadays it's like, okay, who's Frank Stallone writing for unless I'm just writing for myself. But it'd be nice to be that type of artist where you could write and it's going to be out. You know, I mean, it's going to come out. So, I mean, I did the Nashville thing and I found I've recorded Nashville and the, uh, the musicians are just perfect. And, and the vibe is perfect once you get the musicians together. Yeah. I don't know so much about the business part now anymore. I know it's changed quite a bit, but, uh, I mean, I used to hang out at the sunset grill, man, you know, just that, that was the day sitting there getting hammered with other songwriters and acts and come in and, uh, it's, 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 it's very homogenized. Now it's kind of sad that it's gotten really like so homogenized and, you know, before those guys, man, I mean, the Chris Christopherson's, the Mickey Newberry's, they are great writers, man. And, you uh-huh. know, I mean, covered their stuff, everyone, Johnny cat, you name it, Roger Miller. I mean, these guys were really good songwriters. I don't know if they in today's Nashville would have made it. I don't think so. No. No, I, I don't think so. Again, that goes back to we're not looking for great songs. So looking for hits, right? But I know. thought it was to be a great song. Uh, man, I'm right there with you. I would love more than anything to get back to the time when that is that is true. You know, and and it's yeah. like I, it floors me sometimes. I'll be talking to somebody. Oh man, that is such a great song, and I'm like, no. No, that is, that is not a great song. Just because you hear it on the radio every 53 minutes does not mean it's, that like, it's a great song. It's like the My Pillow commercial. I'm ready to strangle this guy. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mike Lindell. I said, and the guy goes, well, I like My Pillow because it's a good pillow. It looks like he just ate four pillows, okay, the guy. <laughs> and so my friend Carrot Top is a good friend of mine. She goes off of that commercial because it's just so much. And they're long and they're boring. I'm going to interrupt this commercial for my pillow made in Minnesota. And I say, oh, come on, man. At least change your shirt. Right. I change the outfit. Like I have a, you know, a girl on a stripper pole landing on a my pillow. Something interesting other than, you know, the commercial as it is. It's just like, so it's, it's, it's almost like the music business. It's this redundant pounding on your head of mediocrity. Like I think Billy Joel is a superb artist and songwriter. Superb. I think Agreed. he's as good Elton John, anybody. Okay. And he was getting all these accolades, you know, from people. He goes, it's not, I'm really that good. It's just that the bar has been lowered so much. And I disagree because I think he's as good as any songwriter out there. But in his humble opinion, he goes, well, it's just that the bar is so lowered. There's so much bad music. That's why I come off like George Gershwin, you know? So it's like, uh, it's like almost Paul McCartney's new songs. You know, there comes a time to wrap it up. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's Paul McCartney. He's not like cute anymore. He's kind of like, you know, he's great. He's like a Cabbage Patch doll now. I mean, you know, he's like one of these really cute guys that just got old. Like, right. you know, Benjamin Button type thing, you know? So, and there's very few artists. See, but Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin could go on like that mm. because they always looked older than they were and they were big drinkers and smokers and they could do that thing, you know, but like when you're almost like really almost like so cute and good looking and we, and you're trying to still be cute and good looking, 
it, it doesn't like work. But the stones it works for because they were never cute. Well, the, it, they were right, just they, the and ever. Well, and a lot of the a lot of the the those artists they also don't realize that about. 12 years ago, the industry sold it so to 12 year olds and these 12 year olds have no sense of heritage legacy. They have no, they're not, they don't even know who the Beatles are. I mean, is that pretty scary? You know, you're dating way below your thing when you go, man, you know what? I love dating life by the Beatles. Like, who's that? I go, Whoa. Okay. Now I'm, we, okay. I got to start moving up to the mid fifties now. Okay. <laughs> right. I, happening anymore okay uh yeah the kinks man you really got me hey was that about hair i go okay all right yeah you know it's just like you know it's like you know like you know the old saying oh man i got kink in my hair i mean that's what they think it has something to do with their hair salon but then you know you're in in really deep order like people go man isn't rod stewart's standard album great i go to who (laughs) i mean (laughs) I mean, I'm listening to Tony Bennett, Nat King Cole, you know, Johnny Hartman, you know, I mean, I'm li- I mean, I listen to the greatest right. Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah one. So when these guys come, it's like when Michael Bolton, who I think is a great pop singer, but when he did the opera album, I, I even people, my brother go, it's pretty good, isn't it? I go, well, obviously you don't know anything about opera because in the opera world, no, it would not, it would not be, it would be like, it just wouldn't float. You know, it's like, right. you know, it's like someone to riff on Tchaikovsky or Rachmaninoff. You, you can't do it, you know? So, but not, but I gave Michael Bolton an A for effort. It, I mean, it wasn't bad, but it's not like he would have gotten a job at the Met. Right. Well, and it's all, and, it, and it's also all how it's framed and trying, trying to be sold. If they would have tried to sell that album as, uh, as Michael Bolton being Michael Bolton doing these songs, different story. Yeah. But they tried to sell yeah. it as an opera record. And it's like, he's not an opera singer. So it's not an opera record. It's just a, no, he's a no, pop cover record. Yeah, he's no Mario Alonso. Okay. So it's like, yeah, no. but he's a good singer. He had a great career. And all of a sudden, isn't it so weird? Here's a guy, Michael Bolton was like the My Pillow guy, he was constantly on the radio. Am I right? Oh, oh here's another. Yeah. I'm constantly on the radio and he does dancing with the stars and his career is destroyed because he was uncoordinated and he had like a bad attitude about it. And he never like sold records again. Is that weird? No, well, it is really weird. I was, as a matter of fact, my wife and I were having a conversation about this not long ago. And she's like, we were talking about. Why would you talk dancing with the stars? They offered it to I, me. I go, are you crazy? I, I, the only place I see Michael Bolton anymore is at the Polo Lounge at the Beverly Hills Hotel. That that's yeah. it, and he's there all the fucking time. <laughs> so, I, well, you know, Mike made a lot of money, and he had some really good records. I, you know, I mean, but the thing is, he stopped doing his own songs he wrote. Yes, he quit being Michael doing, Bolton. Yeah, I mean, his early stuff, the one that Laura Branigan live without you, great record. He wrote, he, he could write songs. But all of a sudden, he stopped. It's like when I went to Branson, Missouri to play, it took me two and a half weeks to say, you know what? I, I, I can't do this because you will turn into uh, the most mediocre. You could go in there as a real artist and within a year. You're like as deep as popping fresh to Doughboy. I mean, there's nothing because I'm sitting there said, who am I playing to? People go, well, you're playing too loud. I go, 
why? Well, you know, we got a lot of old people said, okay. And then it was like, you don't have any drink. Oh, no, no, no. We have bench. I said, so what am I doing? So I invented the thing called the exploding hearing aid door. So I turned my amp up to 20. Okay. And guess what? All these people that they thought were fragile and old and this, they had a blast, you know, and I had some great time. Yeah. I mean, Andy Williams, I went to see his show. I mean, I I was invited everywhere. Mickey Gilly, but Mickey Gilly's this good old boy. He's having fun with his friends there. I mean, Andy Williams was there. Ray Stevens was there. They're all there, but they were all leaving when I was coming to go. Yeah, I've been here. Don't don't forget Shoji Tabuchi now. You can't talk about Brady. Talk about Shoji, man. But here's a guy that no one outside of Branson would know who he is, no. but he sells out. It's unbelievable. Like the like the Russian guy. What was his name? Yakov Smirnov. Yeah, I know Yakov, Yakov. Smirnov. Yeah. Sold out. He said, I'm done. I can't. It's a grind. I said, this is not for me. I mean, I'm not a residency type artist. Let me do my two nights. And I'm out. You know, I can't see myself. I don't like Vegas anyway, but I can't see myself doing like a year. Not that they would hire me for a year, but, but doing that. Cause I don't really gamble. You know, I mean, uh, I like to take a drink, but I don't gamble. And, uh, and Vegas is not the Vegas that I used to go to. I mean, now it's yeah. kind of like candy land. I mean, when I was there, that was when the mob guys were there, the hot looking showgirls, the after, you know, the after show hangouts at clubs where people are singing and jamming. That's all gone. Nah. It is like I used to park my car. I swear to God, right on Las Vegas Boulevard in front of Caesars, and walk into casino. You couldn't. Now it's like traffic jams, like Manhattan. I mean, you could. I used to just pull my car as a gravel parking lot behind Caesars Palace. That's gone, man. So the whole thing is gone. But there's a lot of acts, you know. They go, well, Aerosmith is playing Vegas, and there's something about it. That just turns me off. I can agree. You know, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. I get that. I, I can't imagine like Nirvana would be doing a residency at a hotel. Do you? No, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. Well, it cheapens. It cheapens the legacy to me. It's not rock and roll. No, that's not the. If I if I were in their position, that's not the. I mean, let's face it. When you're talking about Aerosmith, some of the. I mean that should in all honesty be the last stop <laughs> that the train has. And, and yeah. I wouldn't want that to be the last thing people remembered me for. I would want them to remember the stadiums and the coliseums and the, you know, the heyday of it. It's like, you know, like when you look back on George Jones career, I mean, no show Jones, like falling down drunk, but he, they always loved him because oh, yeah. he was, he was, that was him. And he was, a damn great, great country singer in oh, yeah. the greatest. I, none better. But he was from that era where they all did speed and <clears throat> drank and did got in trouble, married 20 times, but they all did. I mean, look at Willie and Waylon and Johnny Cash. They were all wild men. You know, yeah. they were, they were all drinkers and womanizers. That was just part of that thing. You know, well, like you were even, I mean, those, even those artists, there's no way in the world in the and we'll dive a little bit into politics here, but th- there's there's no oh, way no. in the world they couldn't have even existed today. No, no, no. Without cancel being canceled. Can you imagine Taylor Swift 
playing on a bill with Waylon, Willie, Johnny. It'd be like, it would be like a vanilla wafer being thrown into like a pastrami sandwich. It just wouldn't work. I mean, because even the women were kind of wild back then. Yeah. You know, I mean, Tanya Tucker, I mean, there were, I never got, you know, and I, I'm, you know, I don't know Taylor Swift. I never got it. I just never got it. I got Shania Twain, not as a country singer. It's just that she was hot and she had a great show and she was seductive and she had that thing. Reba, I get because Reba's bad as country as you're going to get. And yeah. everyone liked her. Same with Loretta Lynn. Same with Tammy Wynette. I mean, they're, they're real country, down home, nice, personable people. I get that. I look at Taylor Swift. It's uh, I, I, just, I just don't get it. I'm not that she's bad, but I, I just don't feel anything. Like when I used to listen to Joni Mitchell, while well, it was Cat mm. Stevens. Okay, I got it. I, those songs are the ones that go whoop, and you get it. Well, you don't get it because you're not a 10, 11, 12 year old girl. Well, that's true. What, Maybe what in I, my next. Well, what, I could be. I mean, whatever you want to identify frank is fine with me if you want to identify as a 10 year old girl so be it <laughs> well which is okay. i want to i do want to ask you about this because one of the things I, that i really do love about you beyond music is that you believe what you believe and you are unapologetically steadfast in that across social media and everywhere. You've been very upfront and public about your support for president Trump. Uh, you're, you're an avid and huge gun owner as am I. Um, and have you, how much pushback have you felt for, for taking such a political or a, a public political stance the way that you have? Well, I don't think it's from my point of view. I think I'm just being an average American that respects his president, that loves his country, that respects the flag, respects the people that serve our country. I don't think that's that radical. So, but when I see things like that, so when people come at me, I said, so I'm being chastised for being patriotic. So in other words, you think more about me if I burn a flag or if I destroyed someone's property or I sat there and called the president that, that, that would, I mean, would that make me a better person? I mean, because I stand for law and order and everything I think is decent. Okay. I mean, Obama was not my choice, but I will tell you this. Someone asked me that yesterday. He goes, well, President Obama asked you to play at the White House. Would you do it? I go, you damn right I would. Of course I would. He's the president of the United States. He's my commander in chief. He was duly elected by, his, by the people. Whether I agree with anything he did is besides the point. But you, you respect the office. I mean. When I see like Stephen Colbert and these shows like Kimmel, it, it's really disturbing because then you see the difference between like when Johnny Carson, they would always take jabs at politicians, but it wasn't so brutal and personal and degrading and horrible, you know, well, because Trump tweets too much. Well, do you think his word would get out if you relied on the press? I don't think so. Uh, I worked for Donald Trump. I used to play his casinos and they say he never pays anybody. My checks always cashed. And he was always nice. He was nice to my mother. Very, very close with, uh, you know, people that I know very well. And he's always, he's a very, you know, he's just got a lot of charisma. And I don't think Uncle Joe really wants to go up against him in a debate. It's one thing to sit there, bam, 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 bam. 
And then it's like, you know, when Mike Tyson would fight or someone, people, yeah, man, I'm going to do this to Mike. I'm going to do that. And then all of a sudden when you get into the ring and you look across and there's Mike Tyson, all of a sudden, like you're just your sphincter disappears. I mean, it's just like you're terrified. <laughs> and that's what happens when people go up against Trump. He's a big guy. He's six foot three. He's a big, imposing guy that you never know what's going to come out of his mouth. So they fold like a like an accordion, you know, like when they go up against him. And uh, I think it'll be great. I mean, I think people are saying, I said, Biden's stuck in his basement. You cannot win the presidency of the United States from your basement in Delaware. You're going to have to get up. You have to man up and prove to the people that you are physically and mentally strong enough to go up against this guy. If you, if you want to be present, you have to debate him on these topics. And you have to also debate him on your past in politics. What did you do? What didn't you do? And stuff like that. So it, it and that's what uh, makes horse races. But I, I think probably I haven't worked in a while. You know, I was okay with my money. I saved my money. I mean, it's not like anyone's knocking my door down. Uh, I mean, I've done 76 movies. I've been in some good ones, Tombstone, Barfly. And those are people that are going to hire me or hire me. Some of these young new filmmakers that want to be like Sam Peckinpah. They go, hey, man, Doug and Barfly. Hey, love you in Tombstone, you know, or I liked you in Fred Claus or something. It's going to have to be one of those guys. But as far as the uh, status quo of Hollywood, I don't think, you know, I'm not, I'm not even worried about it. That's why when I said uh, if I left Hollywood, it really wouldn't. It's not like they would have like a like a morning parade for me leaving. You know what I mean? Right. So. You know, it's not like they'd be going, oh, man, let's let Frank Stallone is leaving Hollywood. They would probably have like a rocket like in Dr. Strangelove to fly me out of Hollywood. But the thing is, I surround myself by people that I like. And I'm see, the funny thing is, I'm I'm a live and let live kind of guy. I have friends of mine that are democratic. I have friends of mine that are libertarians. I have friends of mine. I don't have friends of mine that are communists or Marxists because I don't go for that stuff. And I, as long as you can have a debate, but if when you kind of get in my face and trying to make me wrong and yourself right, that's that self-righteous stuff, which I really don't appreciate. And what's going on now is the undercurrents of Marxism and fascism. So in other words, if you don't agree with what we say or what we do, we are going to destroy your career, your livelihood. And it's happening all the time. Mm. To me, that is so horrible to sit there and destroy someone's livelihood. That's, that's like the McCarthy era because of something that you don't agree with. Why can't you say, okay, we agree to disagree. And when the election comes up, what, who, may the best man win. Right. But I mean, I'm real skeptical of this mail-in ballot stuff. I mean, my friend's dog got a ballot. Dog's been dead six years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's happening. That's not a joke. People are going, my uncle's been dead for 30 years and he was getting an absentee ballot. So this thing is really a tendency to be really fraudulent. And that's why when they asked President Trump, uh, would you, would, how would you be with the results came out wrong? He goes, well, I'd have to see because he knows they're trying to pull something. I mean, he's oh, not well, stupid. No. He didn't get where he, he's stupid. I, I have, I, I lost, I lost a lot of, uh, of faith in that whole system with the, just uh, last week. Uh, a couple of friends of, of my wife, 
um, got positive COVID-19 test results in the mail and they never took mm-hmm. the test. They went to the okay. testing facility and yeah. they they pulled up. It was in two stages. One, you pull up and they have you do all the paperwork. You fill all the paperwork out and then you pull forward and wait on your turn. Well, they didn't want to wait the hour and a half to get the test after they'd waited so long. Turn around, went home. <clears throat> two days later, oh they get test results in the mail that showed they had tested positive and they never took the test. So, so when, that's insane. When, when when you when when things like that are are and it's one thing when you see this stuff on social media, it's like, uh, who knows what's real and what's not real. But, but when yeah. you, when you know somebody and they're like, no, let me take a picture. I'm going to, sh- let me show you the results. And it's like, when you see stuff like that, then I don't care what side, if you're a Republican or Democrat, you cannot look at that and go, yep. Mail-in voting is a hundred percent safe and secure. Oh no. I think, I think that is a disaster. I, this is why things happening. I think there's a few people, which I will leave nameless and I, you know, until proven guilty or otherwise, that are kind of quaking in their boots over this girl that got uh, with the Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. That has all the information. I can, I have friends of mine, they're FBI. I have friends of mine. They said, Frank, they had her statements before they ever picked her up. You don't think they knew where she was the whole time? It's like, right. this CIA, you think she's going to fool them? I guarantee you before they even took her in, they were, they were documenting everything she says. They have everything because she's looking at life in prison. You're talking about underage children and stuff like that. And a girl like that, that's from a rich family in London, uh, that's used to good life. It's not going to sit in prison for the rest of their life for whoever. So I think there's a lot of people. If you see the documentary, dirty money, the Jeffrey Epstein on uh, Netflix, yeah, it's pretty, it's, pretty scary. I mean, the people that have gone to that island and said that they didn't, but the flight log says different. Like Bill Clinton said, I never was there. The flight log says you were on this plane tw- tw- 26 times. Yeah, 26 times. 26 times. And then Bill Gates. Why would Bill Gates go to that island? Why would uh, Prince Andrew? Why? You know, I mean, the thing is now when you see any other time you could say, okay, well, you know, I have a friend of mine as an island, man. We just hang out there, just kick it. But this guy was a deviant. This is not like, you know, like your friend that did well in his life and he wants right. to have fight down for Christmas and stuff. This is a guy that got three 14-year-olds for his birthday from this woman. I mean, that's insane. Anybody has children. So I think people are really nervous about that. And I think they're really nervous about the Durham report. Mm-hmm. If you look at Durham. He looks like like General Sherman, one of those type guys, like like dead. Yeah, I mean, and there are people like I mean, Clapper and Brennan and Lynch. They're crapping their pants because they don't know what they have. And Bill Barr and Durham are no fools. These are top. These are killers, man. These these guys don't play. And if anything is hidden. And, you know, I mean, listen, I don't like to see the sacrificial lamb, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, it's really funny, you know, with the mask things, I, I it drives me crazy. I, you know, I don't wear them. I mean, if I in my car, I don't wear a mask if I have to wear it to go into a store. But now they have these new masks. It's the head of a sheep. Because really? it's like the sheep, yeah, the sheep being led to slaughter. Nice. So, Kind of a thing. It's like a lamb's head, like a sheep's head. You put it on because. I mean, this is how, like, I mean, if you read in history, 
of Marxism, Nazism. This is how it all started. They, they yeah, start. It's, it's not. It's not. As, I mean, the plan is laid out in those books. I mean, it's like if you want to disarm a society, you do this, and you. I mean, it is. It's it's a playbook. That it's Hitler's book. Yeah, it is, Bill. I mean, there's even weird books like the Turner Diaries that, that it's all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God. It's like George Orwell was a shaman. He was a genius. 1984, Big Brother's watching. Big Brother is inside your intestines with a camera. You can't do anything now. Mm. I mean, isn't it amazing when you watch these things going on, the thousands of people with their cameras? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's I mean, I remember when Animal Farm, we were at that school by Orwell and 1984 came out. It was the shocking or Fahrenheit. I mean, these, well, he didn't write that, but Bradbury. But when those things came out, it was almost, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Inconceivable. Now it's unbelievable. I, I remember in the 70s, people go, do you realize, man, Frank, one day you'll be able to talk to your girlfriend and you can see her? On the phone, I go, yeah, right. You know, because those days you're using like a Bell telephone, rotary dial. You're saying, wait, wait, you're going to tell me I can look at my girlfriend? And what are we doing now? Yeah. I'm not, you're not my girlfriend, but I'm just saying. Well, I was about to say, saying, Frank, look, that, that is one way you can identify yourself that ain't going to fly. That's the only one is I'm not your girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. Look at this now. I'm sitting in my home here and you're in, 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 in Nashville and we're having like a, a a show. Yeah. I mean that would that would be inconceivable in the 70s. I grew up with a phone booths that you wrote a girl's phone number down on the back of a match cover and my people well, how did you survive? You go, "What do you mean how did you survive?" You picked up the phone, you called someone, you made a date and uh, you didn't flake out and that's how it went in those days. If your car broke down, you had to go to a phone booth and call like a garage or your cousin or someone to come pick you up. It was a different world. It was a more responsible world because you had to do and your word meant more. I mean, I was at a club. Well, I don't really go to clubs, but I went to one because a friend of mine had, and it was unbelievable to me. I mean, these beautiful girls, I mean, where, but they're dressing, dressing so suggestive. It's like really scary. And there's like these guys around, like, no, 24-year-old good-looking guys in Hollywood. And there's nothing going on. The girls are sitting there like this on their phone and and texting and doing selfies. And these guys are sitting there and there's nothing. And uh, so I went up and I said, you know, it's a club here. It's loud. It's like every. I said, who are you texting? She goes, my girlfriend. I go, okay, well, where is she? He goes, A-Lock, she's over there. I said, you're actually texting your girlfriend that's 10 feet away? I mean, wow. it, it, it's insanity. I mean, I remember to get a date, you, in my day, you had to work for it a little bit. I mean, you had to go up, hey, how you doing? It's not like they could look you up on social media. You had that pretty good rap. Right, <laughs> you know what right. I mean? If you're in a bar playing with a band, yeah, I'm Frank, yeah, I'm here, I'm here. It's not like, while they're talking to you, they're looking you up on Google or looking for what's your Instagram. Right. So in other words, you're being like snatched. It's, it's, it's crazy. And you know, I would survive. Say if the grid went down, you and I would survive. I would just go fishing or hunting or, you know, I mean, I grew up with not this stuff. So yeah. Would it be uncomfortable? No, 
Yeah, for a little bit, but I know how to read a book. I know how to write. I know how to, you know, if I need to eat fish or whatever I need to do, it would not be, you know, we have gotten a little spoiled. I mean, I do like the internet. I like it because I'm an information junkie. I mean, so Mm. I like that part of it. But, But the social part of it where people don't even talk anymore. Guys go out on dates. They've never hardly ever talked to the girl. They're just texting. Yeah, that's true. So you don't even have, because, you know, as you and I, as musicians, as as singers, everything is about delivery, right? And dynamics. So when you're singing, hi, how are you? What's up, bro? Okay, so that's like a robot, like Robbie the Robot from Forbidden Planet, opposed to someone picking up the phone and going, hey, hey, Steve, what's going on, man? How's everything? You've been writing? How's the weather? What's going on? You don't have that. Now it's robotic dialogue because if you look at, listen to Fox News or like when, when uh, what's his name? Um, oh, Waters used to go out on the street and talk to the young kids. Yeah. They have no rap. No. Like, you know, like, my bad, man. Like, you know, whatever. No, I don't know because you haven't told me anything yet. I'm waiting for you to tell me. Yeah. When I went out there, you know what I'm saying? I go, no, I don't because you have not made a statement. All you're doing is saying words and saying, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No. If you tell, told me a, like a, a, a complete sentence about and he said, do you know what I'm saying? I said, yeah. Well, you're going, yeah, I was out with some girl. You know what I'm saying? I go, not really. Do you? So that is dialogue that's going on. So the communication skills are really weak. And I hate to say it, it kind of is showing up in uh, film and music. I mean, I, I, and I consider myself pretty open as far as music. I mean, there are some groups I do like. I mean, there are some of these young things that I think are really good. But it's like the other stuff, it's just this constant boom, 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 boom. Yeah, boom, 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 boom. It's like there's no like, like I'm not a fan of reggae. And, and I know there's probably a lot of reggae Bob Marley guys out there. And that's great. It's just too simple for me. Mm. Boom, ching, 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 boom. I mean, like if you listen to my music, like far over, right. it's pretty involved, you know? So the yeah. music is very musical and for some people i know people that play the grateful dead i have a friend of mine he had a store when i tell you this he must had a thousand grateful dead live recordings that he went to almost every show and that's what we've playing all day i said how many times can you listen to like trucking I mean, it's like 8,000 versions of Trugan. It's not like it's like, the, you know, it's not like, you know, yes, doing fragile or like, you know, you know, or stuff like that right. close to the edge. It's like Trugan and all But it's like 80,000 versions of it. Right. And it's just constant. It's again, it's becoming the my pillow syndrome. Mm. I hate picking on Mike Mandel because he is a real good <laughs> Republican. But man, change up your beat a little bit, man. Right. You know what I mean? Not make wear, it so fake. Wear a white anyway. Yeah, well, go on like like with a white beater with a gold chain. Hey, hey, though, there's like my pillow. You know what I mean? When I want to smack someone in the head, I do my pillow, my new one. But it's just like, and the people that he has talking, 
like uh, the yeah. people that are doing the test. They got to be his friends. And when I saw my pillow, well, the geese sheets. I'm going, where do you find these people? <laughs> I mean, no, I'm wondering, I mean, do they work in his factory? And he goes, hey, you want to oh, be, because the the production value is so bad. Oh, it, it's, <laughs> it's horrible. Like, I mean, you know, they sold a few pillows. So it's like, come on, dude, new outfit. And let, let's get some production gear here. This guy's worth hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions. But he always wears the blue shirt with the crucifix hanging outside. And now he's <laughs> hawking his book with the pillows about when he was a crackhead. <laughs> it's like from crackhead to entrepreneur. It's like, now, with the pillows and the geese and sheets, you get my book from crackhead to entrepreneur. It's like... It's like an old medicine show, isn't it? Like a snake oil salesman. That well, I yes, that's that's a great. I was going to say used car salesman, but I think I snake oil salesman. Yeah, it's like it's like an old horse trader. Like we used to have horses. We get these guys come up from Kentucky, and I said, "Man, don't let that down home thing fool you. These are old school horse traders. They'll take the gold from your teeth, man. Be careful with these guys." Yeah. He said. No, no, I won't. That mare over there is the best thing I've ever seen. And all of a sudden, I said, "Well, let's bring the vet in." Vet goes, "Man, this 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 mare's on her last legs. She got bow tendons, it's like cow hocked and everything. <laughs> it's like like selling like a bad car, you know?" Yeah, it's the but, truth. So, but I mean, it, you know, I I I am so happy, Steve, that I'm not coming up today in the music business. It would be, I mean, can you imagine if um, let's, Bob D- Dylan might be probably one of the greatest poet laureates in music ever, would you say? Sure. One of the greatest. Okay. How do you think he would do on American Idol? Oh, he wouldn't, he wouldn't make Hollywood. He wouldn't, he wouldn't even get on the show. No. He would get to the audition period. Can you meanwhile, imagine? The- meanwhile, the, the, one of the big issues with our business is that meanwhile, that's what they're all really looking for. That's, of course. That's the thing. It's like, we want you to fit in this box uh, because yeah. that's easy for us to package and that's easy for us to sell. But when then you start acting like the box, then they're like, oh, we're, why can't you be more like Bob Dylan? And, it, and it's, you know, yeah, what why they can't say you they like want the and what they sell are two completely different. Why can't you be like the guy that has a 60 year career that's considered one of the greatest songwriters in history? And, and that's the thing. Can you imagine Joni Mitchell auditioning for American Idol or Neil Young with that high squeaky voice playing his songs? I want to live. You're out. Now, have you, but it's, speaking of, have you, have you watched this? I thought it was the greatest moment in the entire thing. Have you watched the David Foster documentary on Netflix? I don't know. How, if you have no. it. If you haven't, watch it for one reason and one reason only, because there's a part in there when he's doing the We Are the World version in Canada, and he's got Neil Young in the booth, and he did it, and he hit the talk back, when he goes, hey, Neil, let's do it one more time. You were a little flat on that one, and without missing a beat, Neil leans in the mic and goes, that's just the way I sing. <laughs> it's like... I love it. No, Neil Young's really actually very funny. He's, he's, he's a real talented guy. A little wacky, but he's very talented. I know David. And I, you know, I was at the Grammys at a party. I said, Dave, how many Grammys have you won? He goes, well, I've been nominated like 53 times. 
He's won like 40 some Grammys. Oh yeah. Believe it or not, he wanted to produce me once. And I was like, it was right during he, you know, David's a pretty sharp guy and he's a very talented guy, but it was the, 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 the buzz was out during staying alive. We're filming the movie and people go, Oh, Frank's getting a lot of songs. That's moving. And you know, he's around, he hears everything, you know, and so he was there with Richard Marks and Richard was just a kid coming out here. He goes, no, man, I really like your music. I've been hearing it. I like the producer. I'm there. Yeah, well, whatever, you know, and I never did it. But you always wonder what there's if? something about David Foster. Every act that leaves him goes into spiral failure. I yeah. mean, not Michael, Bay, not so much, but you think of Josh Groban, Celine Dion, all these groups when they were with Chicago. Him, Chicago had hits, hit, hit, because that's what he does. Yeah. He's a control freak, whatever. But hits, hits, Michael Buble hits. Michael Buble still gets played on Yacht Rock and stuff. But I'm talking about major hits. So he does have that thing. Yeah, he's got the touch. Oh, no, he knows how to do it. But I don't know what it would be like to work with him. I personally get along with him fine. But being social and working with someone, as you know, is totally different. I've had meetings with directors that I thought were the greatest guys. We get on the set. It's like fucking like Eichmann. I mean, it's like, oh my God, where's this guy? It's like, you know, like it's like Mussolini. Well, it's that's, just like it's, around. Well, it's funny you bring that up. I was telling somebody not long ago and they were like, there's no way it's that way. And I'm like, I swear to God, here's what I found. When I come out there and I'm in Los Angeles, I can sit down, have lunch, dinner with some very important and powerful people. And we sit there and we just, we're friends. We're buddy, buddy, blah, blah. But when we get back in Nashville, we don't acknowledge one another. It's the weirdest thing that I've ever, and I don't know why that is. It's like, they will act like, and one really, really, really big artist. Anytime we see each other, we give each other a hug out in Los Angeles and man, man, what's going on, man, we need to get together, blah, 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 blah. We're in the same room in Nashville act like he doesn't even know me. And it's like, I, that is. What is that, man? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't get that. I, I mean, my friends are my friends. I mean, you know, Steve, I've had friends I've had since I'm 10 years old. Mm. And that's what people say. Like, you know, in my documentary, what you'll see it called Stallone Frank. That is. Yes. I can't uh, wait this, to see it, man. We've been winning, you know, we've won like five, Best Picture Film Festival Awards for it. It's something two guys out of Texas uh, did a documentary on my brother, Forty Years of Rocky, okay, and which also won some film festivals. And they said, "Hey, we'd like to do a documentary on you." I said, "Me? <laughs> I mean, I've been around a long time. Yeah, but that goes no. But your career is like just more interesting than a lot of people because." what you've had to live under. Well, not, I never thought it, but I mean, you know, it's like, you know, it's the 800 pound gorilla in the house. You know what I mean? So going from you had your band, you were on RCA records and all of a sudden Rocky comes out and your whole 20 year career just vanishes. So overnight you become not, you're not Frank Stallone anymore. Now you're Rocky's brother. Right. So, and you're being uh, scrutinized, taken advantage of in the sense like, ah, that's just Rocky's brother, you know? So, so, so they said, well, let's do this movie. I said, you sure? They said, okay. So we did it. And I said, you know what? 
if this is for real, I'm going to call in every favor I know. <laughs> so now we end up with 45 people in this movie. Wow. You got my brother all through the movie. Arnold. Duff McKagan from Guns of Roses. Richie Sambora from Bon Jovi. John Oates from Hall and Oates. Frankie Avalon. Geraldo Rivera, who I fought on the Howard Stern <laughs> show. Uh, Danny Aiello. Joe Montaigne. Billy Zane. It goes on and on and on. And and then the other part is like the guys I grew up with, like the first drummer in my band, the first keyboard player, like when I was 15 years old. And it's very interesting. And I said to everyone, I said, listen, we're going to make this honest. Swear to God, say whatever you want, because I'm not going to be at the interviews. If you think I'm an asshole, say, oh, Frank was always a jerk off. Fine, whatever. We're going to keep it that way. And I said the same thing with the girls, but I said, don't be too hard on me. OK, right. but uh so be a little kind to me a little bit, okay? I'm an old man. But so, I mean, so this thing comes out, and these two guys on a shoestring budget, editing in their house, and they said, Frank, we'd like you to come down to the theater and see a rough cut of this. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm like petrified. I said, this is going to be, oh, God. So I have my legal pad, and I'm ready to redline this thing left and right. Okay, I said, okay, because I don't like seeing myself on film. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, I don't like seeing myself on film all the time. Okay, so I go there. I'm there with my, my buddy Dave, who's one of the producers in the movie. Thing starts. Now, there's no music to it yet. It's a rough cut, right? Within five minutes of the movie, I, I don't know how you explain this, but now it's – not even about me, like I'm watching someone else. Wow. Because everyone is talking about me. I'm just kind of cannon fodder in the middle, but it's everyone talking about me. Now I'm getting emotional. I get tears in my eyes because people I thought didn't like me thought I was like the greatest thing they ever saw. And, you know, my 94-year-old, 98-year-old mother at that time is in it. My aunt, who's one the last of the Sloans, is in it. And then, you know, my bass player, who's one of my best friends, he died like a month before we were going to film him. And I'm looking at this whole thing and I look at Dave Palomeni, who's the my partner in this. I go, did I? I said, you know, I, I'm not one for blowing my horn. I said, is it me or is this like really great? He goes, Frank, this is really great. He goes, this is the how-to movie about staying in the game against all the adversity and all the, the things that come with success and failure. So then we said, okay. I said, wow. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm so honored. I, I don't even know what to say because it's like they captured my whole life, everything. So, wow. so then they put the music to it. And then I said, okay, I go, we got to bring it up to Sly for him to see it on there. Oh, Christ. Now I'm uncomfortable. Because my brother don't like anything. I said, oh, God. I go, so I said, okay, Derek, we got to go bring it up to slide, man. He's got to prove his stuff in the movie. And I'm like, I'm there, oh, God, if, 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 if he doesn't kind of like it, it's like bad for everything because he's like a major part of right? Right. I mean, who are we going to get like a Rocky impersonator to play him in the movie? So we go up to his house. He's got a beautiful screening room. So it's me, the, the director and his partner, 
that, that put the movie together, my brother and all his kids and his wife. I'm there. Oh, Christ. Here we go. So they put it on. And we're watching it as it goes along. And, you know, and it's, it's actually pretty funny. A lot of it's very funny. So the girls are laughing. His wife is laughing. Sly, you hear him go. <laughs> and so I'm there. Okay. Now I see my brother leaning over and talking to the director. Now, I know when he's doing that, my brother is a great director. So what he's doing is I know he likes it. And he's kind of saying, you know, it'd be good if you try this and that like this. So at the end, Everyone starts applauding. They said, and my brother goes, that's great, man. I love it. Great. And I said, Derek, what was he talking to you about? He goes, He's, he would just say like little, you know, tips, you know, of a guy that's been directing for all these years. And I was like, man. And the next one was Arnold. And he goes, Frank, I love it. I love the movie. It just makes it turn around and just, you know. So Arnold loved the movie. And, you know, our birthdays are the same day, July 30th. Oh, wow. And I've known Arnold the time. And I just wanted to thank everybody. I mean, this was unbelievable. I mean, I'm t- I, you have no idea. Burt Young is in it. Talia Shire's in it. And there's a few people that aren't in it that we thought were going to be it, but they were too busy. And But everyone else wasn't busy. So, but... And it just came out. So now it looks like we're going to have a release on uh, Amazon Prime. And I was going on Amazon Prime. Sly goes, what are you talking about? Amazon Prime's got more money than Netflix. Are you kidding me? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) So this is the richest guy in the world. He goes, Netflix doesn't have the money they do. And the thing is, if they want it, that's even better. If you got to force somebody, you know what I mean? What's the point? So I'm really looking forward to that to, to, to come out because, uh, you know, and I don't think it's about my politics at all because I still play places, you know, but because uh, I'm not a political I'm not a political animal. I don't sit there and degrade people because they're this or that. I degrade situations when I see people doing things that are really unfair to innocent people that don't deserve it. That that's when I get opinionated, but I'm not opinionated. I mean, I listen to. I mean, sometimes when I listen to CNA or MSNBC, I'm going, "Are we talking about the same thing? Mm. Is this the same subject?" Because it's like 360. So, and I don't think it's that. But I think when people see this movie, they will realize that I'm not just some guy that picked up the guitar when Rocky came out. I'm the guy that my brother used to carry my amps in the clubs. Okay. It was that thing. I was the guy <laughs> that was on stage and he was the guy, like the working actor writing and stuff. And it just happened that we both collided at the same time. And I don't care who it is. If it was Rod Stewart, nobody could have eclipsed Rocky when it came out. No. It, was the, it was the prominent movie of all time, an unknown unemployed actor in a movie that opened in just two theaters. You know, it was only in two theaters, one in New York and one in California. All of a sudden gets nominated for 10 Academy Awards. And it's considered, it's the most watched movie in the history of filmdom. And it's one of the most beloved movies ever made. So here I am living in $85 a month apartment in Trenton, New Jersey, and this comes out. So it's not like I had like a political machine behind me. You know, I had nothing behind me. You know, I had a car that didn't work. Yeah. So, how do you how do you deal with that? 
you deal with it because you believe in yourself. And if you don't believe in yourself, get out of the business because I know people think they're coming out to Cal. I said, you're not doing anything. You're going to do what everyone else does and you're going to get probably turned down 97% of the time. And it's going to show what you have. Do you have the guts? Do you have the belief in yourself that you say, you know what? I can go on stage with Bruce Springsteen. I'll go on stage with anybody. I don't care who it is. If you don't believe that, you, you, you can't win. It's like a prize fighter. If you go into the fight believing that you can't win, you've lost the fight already, right? So, and it's like, I mean, how many times have you said to yourself, Steve, man, this, this song is, is it. This is, this is, and then you play it for a guy that you consider pretty well known and it just goes right over their head. They, they don't even get it. A million times. How many times. And you sit there and go, I said, I, I said, you know, what, what don't you get? He goes, well, you know, that word there, like the, I mean, are you trying to tell me because of the word the, is that what is bothering you? Well, I don't, I don't really quite understand the lyrics. I said, what's to understand? It's like, it's right here. It's not like deep. It's not like, you know, Pink Floyd song or something like that. But then you get that and it's very frustrating, man. It's like, well, you know, I, it's. No, I agree a hundred percent with you. And what changed for me is that I finally reached a point after having enough situations like that happened that I was willing to accept to myself and realize that that is more a reflection on them and not a reflection on me or the art that I've created. That was yeah. the toughest thing in my career was like you said, playing it for somebody and them because that up and you know, that's a large part of being a songwriter for, as a profession anyway, is it you're, it is completely reliant on somebody else liking what you've yeah. done and cutting it and putting it out and it making money. And, and, that was the point I had to get to was it's like, look, I, you can tell me you don't like it, but, but in all honesty, it tells me more about you than it does about what I've done. And that could be right or wrong, but that's, that's you the philosophy I've adapted. I refuse to hear that's a bad song. It might be a song that you don't like, but it's not a bad song. Yes. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's it, it sometimes it's unbelievable. I mean, I used to work. I mean, I'm the only guy I ever produced Harry Nilsson to me. was one of the great songwriters ever. I said, and I played it for Harry Nilsson, who, who the Beatles thought was one of the greatest writers ever. And he goes, Frankie, man, it's a really great song. So I know I had the seal of approval. So now I'm playing it to some schlepper at A&M records. And he goes, just, here's a funny story. I wrote with Lamont Dozier, who was part of one of the, biggest Motown writing the Holland Dozier and Holland probably mm -hmm. wrote a hundred records. Okay. He tells me, and this is, and this, and, and also folks out there, remember Elvis Presley and the Beatles were turned down by every record company known to man. Elvis and the Beatles, think about it, turned down by everybody. Oh no, it's never going to go. Anyway. So he's told me a story about Marvin Gaye. Now, Marvin Gaye probably had 30, 40 hit pop records, right? And then he just disappeared. So all of a sudden they said, all of a sudden he comes, shows up into the office of Barry Gordy and Smokey is there and Lamont's there. And so, hey, Marvin, where you been? And he looks totally different. He's got the red knit hat. He's got a beard. He's wearing like jeans, you know, kind of looks like a hermit type guy. And he goes, where you been, man? You know, what you Took off for like a year, man. We need to hit records. Barry Gordy's going like this. So he goes, well, I want you to hear something I've been working on. Okay. It's unbelievable. 
So he puts on a dub for those people out there. That's what they had in those days, like a dub, a dubber. And he plays the whole album of what's going on in the entirety. And at the end, Barry Gordy's got this dumbfounded look on his face, but he didn't get it at all. He goes like, where's the hits? Where's it? It's smoking on a little monitor sitting there going, oh my God, this might be one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life. And at the end result, it is one of the great albums ever. What's going on out? I mean, totally. it's, I mean, it changed R&B music forever. I mean, then, you know, Stevie came out with Interventions and then Marvin went on with so many great songs. But just goes to show some people are very resistant to change. They just, where's the hits? But no, this is not the, this is the hit. This is the revolutionary record. Do you realize what EMI must have thought when they heard Sgt. Peppers for the first time? Oh, you know what they the were heck? going ape shit. <laughs> well, John, all of a sudden these clean cut little bushy haired guys. Now Glenn's got wire rim glasses, a Fu Manchu. They all got mustaches and beards. They're wearing like parade uniforms. They're probably going, oh, God, these guys have lost their marbles. Again, went on to be probably one of the greatest records of all time. Well, and I think a lot of, a lot of people getting into this business do not understand that A&R, record label executives and staff, they go to school for a couple of years before they get these jobs. And the only class they take in this school is how to say no. Because no is the protection that no, there is so much job security in no. And when they say no, they're not saying no, they don't like you. No, they don't like your song. They're saying, no, I'm, there's no way I'm, I'm taking a chance. It might be good. It might be great, but I'm not going to be the one. And That's and amazing. Yeah, I'm not going to take the shot. I'm yeah. not going to take the hit. Yeah, but I unfortunately, go, I, to make yeah, it in the music down, business, you got to have somebody great. first. Yeah, but deep down, they probably say, man, this is really great. Think about Garth oh, Brooks. Totally. Here you go. Short, short guy, overweight kind of guy, just kind of a nice person I've always heard, but an ordinary looking guy, not like a Brad Pitt looking guy. And he used to work at uh, Manuel's Western store. Right. Okay? Nashville. All of a sudden, this guy changed the whole face of country music. This guy, not this great looking guy, looked like Charlie Sexton or Brad Pitt. This guy with the cowboy hat, and he turned country music into a Kiss concert. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's the truth. Uh, he really did change country music. Well, I and, mean, and before was, was like, turned down by every single record label more than one time, and probably has sold well over 150 million records. Well over. Oh yeah, he might be one of the largest selling. But again, why? He's a nice guy. He's personable. People can relate to him and he writes good songs and he's a good performer. You know, he's just not sitting there like, you know, plucking on, oh, they're seeing a lot of war. You know, I mean, stuff like that. He's doing like really good stuff. So uh, there are the people that have the have the insight and there are some people that don't. And well, it's just, and I, you know, and I think it comes back to as well. I was having a conversation the other day with somebody. I believe wholeheartedly when you look over the time as long as you far as back as you want to go the people that we idolize that we look up to that we recognize as quote unquote superstars they were entertainers they were not artists they were entertainers and there to me oh, yeah. is a huge difference between an entertainer and an artist yeah yeah elvis was an artist 
Frank Sinatra was an artist because they didn't really write, create their music. They created their persona, but they didn't really create where you have on the other end, Bobby Darren was a great performer, but he also wrote everything. Right. You know what I mean? As the Beatles, as Paul Simon, as James Taylor, all that stuff like that. But yeah, you're right. But, you know, Sinatra in their own way were artists, but they weren't because they they were singing other people's music. But in essence, turned it into theirs. They made it their own. I, That's exactly right. No one can sing Jailhouse Rock, but Elvis, you know, crazy. <laughs> you know, I mean, stuff like that. And it's uh, it's like Hall of Notes. I mean, they're great writers, great singers. You know, I've known them. I've known them since 1968. John and I were in a band together in oh, 1970. Wow. Yeah. And Daryl was going to come down and audition for us in 1968 or 69. But we didn't make any money. We were playing all our own music. We thought we were like the Buffalo Springfield. And he had to make money because he was getting married. So we were not the group for him. You know what I mean? <laughs> but as I did his show live at Daryl's house. And I mean, think about it. They're the largest selling duo in the history of music. And it's been almost 30 years until they got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And when they got in, it wasn't like they were that excited about it because I I think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think it started good intentions. But I'm looking at stuff. Joan Baez and Nina Simone are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's not rock and roll. But Paul Revere and the Raiders aren't in. Right. Grand Funk Railroad is not in. Three Dog Night is not in. Uh, I mean, a lot of groups aren't in. 38 special. I mean, but I'm talking about groups like three, like eight, the, the grassroots I'm talking about groups that had like 15 hit records. Yeah. They're not in. They're not in. I mean, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Are you crazy? Well, Think I'll tell it. you, the I had hit records, a little, a little foray into that for, as it affected me personally, because I always just assumed things with the rock and roll hall of fame were on the up and up. That was before my whole Grammys situation and all of that. And I realized, Oh, this shit's bought and paid for. But before all of that, I realized we, my, one of my family's closest friends, he might as well be my uncle. It's just, has always been a, was a part of our family. I can't even remember how long was Scotty Moore. And I, it blew me away that it was just like nine years ago when we finally got Scotty into the, into the rock and roll hall of fame. And when, you know, I mean, when I, and I was like, my uncle was, cause my uncle was his best friend. And, and I'm, and I'm like, wait a minute. You mean, Scotty's not in, he's not in the rock and roll. And he's like, no, we're, we're mounting this campaign to try to get. And I'm like, how can. You're talking hard? rock and roll. That is the antithesis of the rock and roll guitar player. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, all the Chuck Berry and all this about I'm the godfather of rock. And I'm like, to me, the godfather of rock and roll when it comes to guitar players is the guy that actually wrote and played the licks. And Scotty. Yes, there would be no. I would argue knowing what I there might not even be an Elvis if there weren't a Scotty Moore. So might not have that combination of Bill Black, him. It might not have. I mean, you know, it all it kind of works together. Like you get Creedence Clearwater individually. They're not great musicians. I mean, John Fogarty is a genius of what he does. But together, it's unbeatable. That's I right. mean, the combination of Bill Black and Scotty and Elvis and, you know, Sam Phillips, just it, they he nailed it. But look at all those licks. I mean, look at Bill Hood and the Comet, those guitar licks. 
there would be no rock and roll if it wasn't for for those guys. I mean, and it's amazing. And James Burton probably be the him and Scotty were real tight. He yeah. probably be the first one to tell you that he should have been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I mean, Harry Nilsson's not in the Rock and Roll no. Hall of Fame. Guess what? Ringo, who's Harry's best friend, has petitioned for that. Ringo Starr, Beatles, and he's still not in. It's so. It's listen. I mean, I kind of dig it. I, I kind of like what Paul McCartney did when he was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or something like that. And and Little Richard was sitting there with Doc Thomas or something like that. And he goes, "Raw." And he and and he was nominated for something. Little Richard, I think it was a Grammy or something. Yeah. But they didn't even announce him. They didn't even bring him on stage. Paul goes, "Raw." Yeah. You know, Paul goes, nah, 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 nah. This is Little Richard. This is rock and roll, mate. And he really, he was, Paul was, you know, because he loved singing Long Tall Sally, all his Little Richard. He was visibly pissed. Mm. You could tell he was not happy with that because that was a total diss to Little Richard. I mean, come on. There, I mean, think about it. If you, if, if you didn't have Elvis, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, there would be no rock and roll. No. Right? There wouldn't. And Jerry Lee Lewis is the greatest. To me, he is the craziest guy. I mean, look at his life. It's unbelievable. I'll say that. We're talking Me Too movement. He married his 13-year-old cousin. Right. Can you imagine that now? Hey, man, she's really family. I got to tell you that. And But the guy sustained like a 60 year career and you can't kill him. I mean, I mean, everything is tried, but I mean, you think about, I remember now, I remember, I remember seeing these guys the first time they were on TV. I was like seven, six years old. And I, and we, I was sitting there like this, I guess, like, like comatose going, what am I watching? Everybody keeps a rocket. And more he go, his hair would come down over his shoulders. His blonde blocks fall right in the middle of his face. You couldn't see him wearing these flashy suits. And he was just, but he was great. You know what yeah. I mean? He was like, he would be like grunge rock considered like for that time. He was yeah. like way over the top. I mean, he was before you had like, on a day like Pat Boone and Jerry Vale, and then all of a sudden, overnight, you have Elvis and Little Richard, and you know all these guys come out that are like long hair, sideburns. It's like it's almost like I was there. I was there, man. I saw it. I went to Love Me Tender at the movie theater when it came out. It was just like when I went to see the Beatles' Hard Day Night. It was just constant screaming. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just girls like fainting and like, oh, and just passing out. So it, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, how it just changed. And then when the Beatles came out, remember, Elvis was in the army. So it was, and, and I'm not taking anything away from him, but it was Fabian, Pat Boone, right? You know, Bobby Rydell, it was that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, these guys come out with like long hair from England. And it's, and I remember seeing it on TV, I go, I'm done. That's it. I'm hooked. The Elvis thing, I was hooked. Elvis, I was six years old, I go, this is what I'm doing. And then, you know, you go in and then all of a sudden now you're 13 and you get the double whammy, the 
the Beatles came out and my, 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 fa- my mother turned my father. She goes, you know, we've lost them. You know that. <laughs> I was like the next day I had beetle boots. I was wearing the pea coats. It was like trying to speak with a British accent. Hello, love, you know, I was like 13, 14 years old, 13 years old, but I knew this was the road, man. I mean, wow. I was hooked, put a nail in that coffin and, and that was it. I never, I honest to God from Elvis, I never wanted to do anything else, but be a rock and roll singer whether in a band or by myself, I didn't, you know, respectively, I didn't want to be a fireman. I didn't want to be a cop. I didn't want to do this. This is what I wanted to do. And, and it's been good and it's been really bad. I mean, it's a journey for sure. It's not like, you know, it's not like going on American Idol and, you know, the next day you're making, you know, $50,000 a show. I used to work, I used to work six nights a week, a hundred and 60 minutes, four sets at 40 minutes each, 20 off a night. That's 160 minutes of music a night times five or six. And I would make, after the band, everything, I'd make maybe $110 Wow, a week. Well, I figured you got, if we made, this is, and I know it's unbelievable. Some kids have said, this is 1972. So the band is making $125 a night. Split that four ways. Okay. That's little more than $25 each. And my manager is getting 20%. So he's getting $125. Okay. So, and so, I mean, can you imagine if you said, Hey, listen, man, you're going to be working 106, you're playing 500 minutes of music a week in a dive bar with blue smoke because everyone smoked. You're going to have to drive in inclement weather. And you might make a hundred twenty dollars. No, they're not up for that these days. That's a bar tab. No, that's it. Well, they all have to me what I call the call me when I'm famous syndrome. It's like, you know, they're not they're not. Most of them are not willing to put in the persistence, consistency and sacrifice that it takes to really be successful. That's why they're all out there rioting and all this shit, because that's more valuable for their time. Like Bruce Springsteen, when I read his book, and we're politically totally opposite, but I know Bruce and I and I think he's great. He's a hardworking guy. But our careers are exactly almost the same. When I'm reading his book, same places. I was living in New Jersey, same places, same, same just the same thing, sitting in our bedroom, little crappy bedroom with our guitar, like, you know, with the TV screen this big, you know what I mean? And having that dream and having the insecurities that go with it because we're different. Because we're not football players. We're not big, handsome guys. We're not getting the girls or anything like that. So I read the book. I totally re- related to it. And then I was talking to Bruce once. And I said, I got to tell you something. Do you know we shared a bill together once? He goes, I said, not in a stadium. Okay, trust me on this one. Is 1972. And this is, a, make God strike me dead. It's a true story. I'm playing at a place called Kenny's Castaways, which was 85th street and third Avenue in New York city. Now I'm working in Bloomingdale's for some reason as a shirt salesman, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. You know, I'm tucking my hair into my thing, you know, cause it's that time, you know, clean cut, but no, I wanted to be a rock guy, but I also didn't want to star, but I hated the job anyway. So I would moonlight at night. I play folk clubs and Greenwich village and all. So I'm playing this thing. And I just thought I was, you know, I was a solo act. I was just going to go on. It's like a folk club called Kenny's castaways, Irish guy owned it. Right. 
mean, God is my witness. I walk in and you know, those like a kind of, they're not chalkboards, but they're white and they use like pencil and they like right. today's menu. Oh, yeah. I swear to God, it says tonight starring, no, tonight appearing Bruce Springstein, not Steen, Stein, and Valentine. That was my name. I used the name Valentine. I didn't use my real name. <laughs> I'm I walking into the club, right? And there's this guy on stage with this hat, like kind of pulled down over his face. And he's, hey, like, I'm going, who the hell is this guy, right? So I just walk into the dress room, waiting until he comes off. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing this music. So I thought he was finished his show and they were just playing music, you know, until the next act came on. I go, man, this is smoking. It sounds like Van Morrison. I open my dressing room door. It's him and the East Street Band. They just weren't on oh, the stage wow. when I walked in. And he's doing Rosalita, jump a lip, blinded by the light. I'm there, holy Christ almighty. I said, whoa, man. And, and I had to go on, play. I had to follow that. Oh, no. God. The acoustic. And I'm there, and I was talking to him in the dressing room after that. He was a real nice guy. You know, he's like a scraggly little skinny guy. He didn't look like born in the USA guy, like bodybuilding. He was like a little skinny guy like I was. But is that amazing? Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> like, sounds like a Jewish, like, accountant. Yeah, exactly. Hey, and, and I don't think he would have like, made it with a name like Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> it just no, don't, I don't doesn't read right. Bruce Springsteen is kind of, you know, it's like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's not like marquee like name, you know? Yeah. But that's what it was. So my life is, and, and you know, we talk about this stuff in, in the documentary. And, uh, but that's what makes life worth living. That's, I mean, you've got to have the, the curves in the road. You have to have it. You don't appreciate the good things that happen. You know, if everything good happened to you, when something bad happens, you fall apart. And mostly in my career, everything bad happened other than me having a good time. But as, as far as moving ahead with my career, everything was like, it was like one step forward, 20 steps back, one step forward, 20. So, I mean, it, it's, it's that ebb and flow and you got to be able to roll with it. It's like a boxer. You got to be able to roll with the punches when they come in. You know, you and look, I don't know if a lot of young acts can do it. I don't think they can either. When you look back over everything that you have accomplished, what what is most important or what do you value the most? Hmm. I think I value the most um, people I love. Um, health. I mean, health is, you know, I've been losing friends left and right. All my best friends have died. That I, the guys that you could call two in the morning, no matter where you were, or if you were doing the long drive cross country, you'd be on the phone for four hours just talking about stuff that no one else knows about. Mm -hmm. so I lost my drummer last week. I talked to him ten minutes before he died. It was my first drummer who's in the documentary. Uh, you know, it's things like that. I, I you know, I, I cherish health. I cherish friendship. You know, you know, my, my family. What what's left of my family and stuff like that. And of course, you know, we all, we all get a free pass for being an asshole at times. I mean, there's no one that is perfect and they don't, and they, you know, they, you know, they say things maybe they shouldn't have said or this like that, but no one's perfect. There's not a perfect machine. Now they're going after John Wayne, something he said 50 years ago. And then all of a sudden every actor that worked with John Wayne, that was either black or Mexican said he was the greatest guy in the world to work with. He was giving you, you know, you do, 
you know, anything for you. And now they want to take his statue down because he, 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 he said something that didn't jive. But, you know, it just didn't ring right. I said, but there's a lot of people that say a lot of I've said a lot of things that are 8,000 times worse than him. And they're not taking his statue down. So I, that is the stuff that is kind of bothering me now, the, the dismantling of our history. We cannot change history. We can learn from history. Can't get tomorrow back, but we have a future. Mm-hmm. There is no, so without history, there is no future because we don't know what the future is. So if, if we sit there, we go, okay, well, maybe that was a bad idea then. So let's work on this. But dismantling, it doesn't get rid of it. It just takes a statue away. It doesn't change history. And that's the stuff that really bothers me because I think it's uh, something that, that that's kind of discounting the future, the kids. There are some people like me. I love the Civil War. I'm a Civil War buff. I love it. I think it's interesting. It was one of the most turbulent times in American history, as were all wars. But it's, it's because you like the Civil War and you like history, you're not a racist. So if you're interested in World War II, you know, German munitions and stuff, doesn't mean you're a Nazi. It's just you're a historian. That's what a historian does. That's why, unfortunately, I mean, it's not unfortunately, that's why some of those Oh, God, those those Hitler death camps like Auschwitz and Dachau, they're still there, not because it's you're going there like, you know, Magic Mountain. It's a thing in history. Don't forget your history. And hopefully you can learn from your history. And we hopefully we do better as we move forward. But this this stuff is like this canceling out stuff. Someone says the wrong thing. They lose their career. job. It's just that's what really bothers me. That's. Because I believe everyone deserves a fair chance. I've always been for like with, with President, uh, the um, prison reform thing. I've always been like mm. that. I mean, unless a guy like a psychopathic killer, I've always think everyone deserves a, a second chance. I mean, if they did their time, you know, and they're not like a sociopath, you know, why shouldn't he be able to get a job? You know, why shouldn't that happen? And I think President Trump did a good thing on that. So, but that all gets skewered. In, in the big picture. But I, you know what, it, Steve, in, in closing, what I wish, I've, I've had a very, look, I've had ups and downs and I've, I always thought I'd be more famous than I am, whatever, but I've had a pretty blessed life. I mean, if I really look at everything, I've been able to do what I love to do my whole life. Okay. I've had to eat crap a lot. I've had to, you know, maybe do jobs I didn't want to do, but I had to survive. Uh, but I've had, you know, I mean, the journey of my brother's journey. I don't know if I could have functioned being that famous, knowing that I, you can't go anywhere, where, anywhere in the world where they don't know you. He was walking in a rice paddy in Indonesia, and all of a sudden people in the rice paddy don't, oh, okay, so, I'm, you know, I mean, it's like, I don't know if I would want that, if, if I could handle that. But the thing is, you know, I still have my mother, you know, I have some friends left, and I still have my voice. I can still play guitar. And I, you know, I got to be thankful for that. I mean, not everything is always going to go 100% your way. And, you know, hopefully these young artists that are spending, you know, you know, $2 million on watches and stuff like that, uh, you know, let's see where they'll be in 50 years. I mean, I can say I'm still here after 55 years of professional music. Let's see 
where Taylor Swift will be at 70 or this guy at 65. Well, you've gone through four divorces. Well, have you gone through, hopefully, not sickness or something? So I've kind of, I guess, run the gauntlet. You know, I hear this a lot of time. People go, well, you're just doing this. If, okay, first of all, I have been 24. You have not been 70. Okay. Mm. You got to put in your time. It's like when they talk to my mother, she goes, I'm almost 100. You're 24. Let's add about 80 years and see where you are. So, and that's the thing. But I think, Steve, it's, uh, it's a sometimes charmed, beautiful life. And there's nothing better, as you know, for us than writing a great song that's sometimes recorded by us or other people and greatly appreciated, something that lives on in time. I mean, the songs I've written for these movies, like Take You Back and Rocky or Peace and Life from Rambo or Staying Alive, these songs, they will outlive me for eternity. Yeah, you know, they'll live, they, gone, they will. I, they'll live forever. They live forever. And that's what's so beautiful about what we do. When you get that right song, that right performance, the, the right artist. It, you know, my friend wrote one of the most recorded songs in history. Uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 Richard Dreesey wrote Never My Love. It's like mm. the most, the second most recorded song in the history of music. One song. Wow. It's been a hit record for so many people. Never wrote up. And I said, man, that is what we call the gift that keeps on giving. That's you know, my true. friend Eric Carmen wrote those songs all by myself. Never going, you know, stuff, hungry eyes. from all, I mean, Those are the songs. That, it, it's, it's almost like, I, and I'm not a really materialistic person in that sense, but it is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> it is. It's like teaching while you're sleeping. Yeah. So if you were along like feelings are yesterday, you never have to work again. If you own no. your publishing, you would That's never have to good. do a, another job. So when they go, how about Alanis Morissette? I said, how about it? she sold 35 million records and she wrote everything and kept the publishing. <laughs> no, 35 I mean, million records. No, That's, I, she's probably hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. No, it know? is. Because. I, 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 I've, I've written and, and good friends with Jonathan Kane, and people ask all the time. Yeah. It's like, man, they got to hope journey keeps touring. And I'm like, no, they don't, they don't need <laughs> no, they don't need Jonathan Kane. They don't need the work. I mean, Paul Simon, think about if you wrote bridge over troubled waters. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> recorded about 400 times. So I mean, but that's not even talking. Paul Simon's written like 20 great songs like that. You right. know I mean? Yeah. You know, Mrs. Robinson, are you going to? So they don't understand the enormity. Neil Diamond, how many hits do you think he wrote? And he owns his publishing. Yeah. Well, put it this put it this way. Years ago, his divorce was settlement. He paid his wife $180 million. So does that put it in perspective? If you're splitting it half. And then after that, he went on to have tremendous. Yeah, even more success. Yeah. I mean, Kentucky Woman, Sweet Caroline, go on. I am, I said goes on and on. He wrote probably Cherry Cherry, probably 50 hit records. Yeah. I'm a believer for the monkeys. I mean, so his publishing is, it's insane. And I think that's what people don't understand. They go, well, they hurt. And I go, no, James Taylor's not hurting. Mm-mm. You know, I mean, people have done fire and rain for sweet baby James, stuff like that. So like, yeah, journey. I mean, like Steve Perry and those guys wrote those songs. Forget it. They've sold 150 million records. Right. They're good. They're good for the rest I mean, of their John, life. 
and he wrote some of that stuff, man. It, believe me, it's. I wish I would have kept all my publishing, but unfortunately, in the movie business in those days, they would try to take all your publishing. You would get your writers, but they take all your publishing, which right. is totally, really unfair. But that's. Uh, but we don't do that anymore. So when Frankie writes stuff, that that's that Frankie keeps the publishing now. Yeah, I don't blame it's you. Like, I walked you know, away from my publishing deal two years ago, and I never looked back. And I and I won't ever look back ever again. UPMG or USCAP? Uh, I'm CSAC now. Um, CSAC. Okay. Yeah, I was yeah. I was BMI for 20 years, and I didn't like what they had turned into over the last 10, 10 years yeah. or so. And I mean, I'd have songs on the chart in the top 10. I couldn't get my fucking rep to call me back. And I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. So uh, CSAC had been after me for a while and, and, and I finally went over to CSAC and love it. I've been really good. I've always had a fairly good, I've been with ASCAP my whole life and they've always, uh, they're pretty on it. I mean, they've been around a long time, you know, ASCAP. And so, and, and, and that's it. But you know, it's, it's funny. People ask me all the time, they go, Frank, do you have a, an agent? Look at my little J200 here. Nice. There we go. Hey man. So, people, that goes on the Christmas tree. I don't know what the hell it's doing here. But, <laughs> you know. so, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, the, what was I just saying? The I publishing. Just publishing. Yeah. And, and the publishing, people don't realize, is the lifeblood of a writer. That's what we live on. And I was always resentful that the people that took my publishing that would have made me a multimillionaire, that money sent their kids to Ivy League colleges. That's my money, not your money. It's my money. Yeah. It wasn't even a deal. Okay, well, we'll take 30%. You take 70%. We want 100%. Who takes 100%? But now uh, there's a lot of legal teams and legal things that are getting their publishing back, which I think is totally fair. I agree. Like, you know, a lot of they're, you know, they're, it's called re something. What's it called? Um, go, if, if, uh, it's well, they've, I've heard it called reacquisition, um, mm-hmm. uh, reposition. I've heard before. Uh, there's a couple things that I've heard out there that they're, they're, where they're, they're now little, going back and getting it because of unfair and predatory practices. Guys like, guys like little Richard, he got ripped off. What do you think he'd be worth? Oh. All the hits he had. I mean, Chuck Berry was smart. Chuck Berry, if you ever saw the movie, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, they did it one time. He goes, man, who's that guy's name on my record? He didn't write, I don't even know who that guy is. And for that point, he goes, he, Chuck Berry, man, give me that money. That's right. And Chuck, everything. And you know what? God bless him. And I'm always for, and I, you know, in, in closing, I always hope the artists that I've liked, I'm sure you're the same way. We always hope they end up okay. Yeah. I hate to see something that was an idol that was great that are sitting there groveling, doing wedding band stuff. I, I don't like seeing that. I like to say, you know what? We're in the twilight every year and we're okay. And all the hard work paid off. But the most important thing is, you know, the, is your health. And oh, and I was sensing, I don't even have representation. You know how hard it is to get someone to go to work and get you gigs? Hard. They go, well, how do you play? I said, I do it. Because they don't want to do it. if they get because re- if they get like oh what's well, Rocky's brother all of a sudden they fold their tent and you don't hear from them anymore. I said well you know what I said I'll tell you what just give me the chance let me play there and then you'll see and then we always get the gigs. But a lot of acts are going through that. But the mm-hmm. you know but the most important thing really at the end of the day is your health because you ain't got your health you can't perform. 
That's the truth. That is true. You know, and we got to leave it all in God's hands, man. But I'm so happy that we connected on uh, online to do your show. And if people are interested, you know, what I'm doing, I'm on Instagram, frank.stallone. I'm, my website is frankstallone.com. And also I got a guitar company, as you know. Yes, I wanted to ask frank- you about Frank Stallone Guitars. Well, I decided to go in partnership with my friend Gary Panapinto. And let's say, you know what? These guitars now are getting really expensive. People are having hard times and, you know, they can't afford to buy a Paul Reed Smith, like $35,000, $4,000. No, they don't have the kind of money. So let's find out some guitar makers, find something that's a great guitar for the minimum price. So we came up with the first guitar is the Tiger. We sold them for like six fifty, including free shipping, gig bag, setup and everything. And we've had nothing but great response. Awesome. And so we went to Echo Guitars, who were made in Italy. I said, well, okay, I'm Italian. Here we go. What? How many times do you find an electric guitar made in Italy? Never. You don't. <laughs> you don't. So I said, I will get involved in this if the guitar is made in Italy. If it's made in, like, you know, Kop, Kazakhstan, I'm not interested. Because how do I sell it as an Italian guitar? You know? Right. So coming out, that's called the Stallion. And that's going to be really cool electric guitar. And then we have an Echo has also been around since 1959. They made, they've been making guitars forever. So we have a few things coming up. Now we have a guitar called the Tigress. We have the Tiger, now the Tigress, and we're starting to sell them. And if people are interested, they can go to frankstalloneguitars.com. And Gary, who kind of runs the day-to-day operations, he's the, he's the CEO. He is a very on it guy. He'll make sure everything runs perfect. You get it and uh, you get the best deal. Some we're doing artist deals and stuff like that. And they're really beautiful guitars. They really are. So I'm doing that. And, you know, so that's what I'm doing. Basically my life is uh, selling guitars, playing music and sitting how many likes I get on Instagram. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when my career goes, all of a sudden I'll lose three. I'll say one thing. I'll lose 3000 people. Yeah. I go, no, I- well, I guess they aren't my fans anyway. Exactly. That's, that's, that's the way to look at it for sure. That is. Well, listen, I, like- I, I, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on. And there is one thing whenever next time I'm in LA, I'm going to call you yeah. and okay. I want us to go eat Italian food somewhere and sit and talk about, because I know you have a fascination and love and collection of mafia as do I. And I would love yeah. for us to sit and eat Italian food and, and compare our notes. Well, I, I will take you to a place that called Rayo's, where Rayo's is probably one of the oldest restaurants in the United States. The original is in New York. It opened like 1890s. And Joey Rayo was a hitman around before Al Capone. He was Stone Cold Killer. Look him up, Joey R-A-O, Rayo. And that restaurant has been in New York all these years. You can't get in. I don't care if you're, if, if you don't have, like some people book a year ahead, but out wow. here, my friend Andy Rose Beef runs it out here and it's the best Italian food. It's all the old stuff you love. Oh. And, uh, it, it's, you can't get more Italian than that. And it's, and it's great. And the food is great. And we can sit there and just talk about the old mustache Pete's. Let, let's let's do that. I, matter of fact, I'll be out there in a couple of weeks, and I would love to do that. Yeah, I think it'd be a blast. Go, man. 
Sounds good. Frank, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and we will talk to you soon. Good luck with everything with uh, Frank Stallone guitars. Go to frankstalloneguitars.com. Check those out. They do look freaking awesome. I'm going to have to have a stallion for myself. Uh, yeah. And then, then it's it just, and find him on Instagram at frank.stallone. Go follow him there and don't give him shit over his politics. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I, I, Frank and I are becoming fast friends. I like Frank a lot. I love his story. Uh, I don't know if you were paying. I hope you were paying very close attention because the theme of what I got when I was doing the interview and on the call with with Frank is what I've been talking and preaching to you guys about for a very long time. And that is persistence, consistency and a willingness to sacrifice. And if you if you go back and you listen or watch this interview again, you will see throughout his career, Frank has been persistent, consistency, consistent, and has had a willingness to sacrifice over and over and over again. And look, it, it, things could have been easy for Frank, right? I mean, he's got a brother who is probably one of the top five most famous people on the face of the planet that has ever lived, can't go anywhere without being recognized, and is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. But instead of just doing that, Frank knew that he was his own man, and he went to work, and he consistently did what he had to do to make a living for himself, To even when it comes to acting and songwriting and being an entrepreneur with Frank Stallone guitars. He's out there doing it as if he didn't have Sylvester Stallone as a brother. And I think that is such a testament that I hope you guys paid attention. I hope that's what you got out of this episode. And like we talked before, go check it out. The guitars are freaking awesome. I love them. I've actually ordered one for myself. Uh, go to frankstalloneguitars.com and check those out. Check out Frank's music. I'm telling you, I've been listening to it for like three days. And I absolutely love the big band album. I love it. Go check it out. Go follow Frank on Instagram and Facebook. On Instagram, it's frank.stallone. Go give him a follow. And again, guys, I appreciate you being here for sure. Don't forget, though, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and leave a written review if you would. Plus, we have just started the new Inner Circle Facebook group, the private Facebook group. Go to uh, facebook.com forward slash the Steve Freeman and join the group. I will approve it. So you just ask to join and I will approve it. Also, don't forget, brand new merch in the Steve Freeman Podcast Store. Those of you listening can't see this awesome travel coffee mug. It's got the Steve Freeman Podcast logo on one, the No Bullshit logo on the other, the real raw truth. Let's see if I can get that to focus in on that. Oh, isn't it so nice? It's so nice. Uh, go check it out. You can find that at thestevefreeman.com as well. Guys, thank you for being here. Keep being creative. Keep pressing the boundaries. And there's nothing wrong with being independent. See you in the next episode. Thanks for joining us for the Steve Freeman Podcast. Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow Steve on social media at, at the Steve Freeman.